0: Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined by Matthew Bianco, an old friend, and a new friend, Sarah Jane Bentley. If you've been listening to The Plays of Thing, you have already met Sarah Jane. She's been on there in the last couple of shows talking about Othello and Macbeth. But this is her debut appearance on Close Reads, and she and Matt are here to discuss Louis um, Auchincloss' novel, director of Justin. But first, let's, uh, let's welcome Sarah Jane and Matt to the show. Welcome back.
2: Thanks, David. We're here representing the uh, European perspective on the snail. <laughs>
0: that's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Matt, you're, you're in Germany, you just got off the Autobahn. How fast were you driving?
1: I hit, at one point, I hit 165 kilometers, 170.
0: How many, what is that in miles? Does anybody
2: know? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> It was between
1: 100
2: and 105 miles per hour. Okay, It's a higher car though, right? So you can do whatever you like in a higher car. Yeah, that's right.
0: That's right. <laughs> um, so yeah, Matt is in Germany right now and Sarah Jane is in, well, where are you? Are you in? Are you just in, where is Eton again?
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm at home in Eton, next to the Thames. I've just been weeding the garden. It's quite a sunny autumn day over here.
0: You've been weeding the garden outside. Yeah next to the Thames. That might be the most English literature thing I've ever heard before. Um, unless it's like you were wandering the dark streets of, you know, a smog ridden 19th century <laughs> London. Like um, the first
2: page of Bleak House or something. Yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. Um, so for those of... So, so a lot of listeners who listen to this show may not listen to um, the place of thing, Sarah Jane, can you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself? You have, say, say 30 seconds to introduce who you are.
2: I'm a school teacher from England. I um I've been teaching for about 10 years. I teach at a private boys boarding school uh, near Windsor Castle and um I teach literature. That's about it from me. Well, I don't know what you might want to know. <laughs> so it you know there's a lot of
0: obvious reasons I feel like why I w- I thought it would be great to have you make your debut appearance here on Close Reads given that this is a book about an all-boys school. Now, obviously, it's not an all-boys school in England, but nonetheless, I feel like there's, there has to be some, uh, some common ground or some common experiences between what you have seen and what you're reading about in this book. Um, before I ask you a question about that, though, Matt, this is your second time reading The Rector of Justin, right? Is that, is that correct? Second time, yes. Okay. So what was your first experience like? Was this a book where you knew right away... That you that you loved it, or did it did it take to the end, or are you just kind of loving it now for well, actually, I shouldn't say that you I know that you're loving it, so I'll leave it at that. What was your experience like the first time?
1: I actually don't remember what my general impression was as I went through it, like I don't remember if I loved it right away or if it took a while, um if I had to you know work at it until I got to that spot where I love loved it I don't remember, but I just remember that there are these Flashes of memories from the story that stick and have stuck with me, like things that the that the narrator learns from, you know, from the rector Prescott. That like that that have stuck with me as things that I've learned. I guess from it. So I I remember those kinds of things, but I don't. Which makes me like the book, which makes me have a fond memory of the book, but I don't remember when I started liking it or not. I think it must have been right from the beginning, but I don't
0: know. Hmm. Well, so okay, Sarah Jane, I wanna I wanna know, does this does this hit too close to home as you're reading it?
2: I'm reading it in the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> oh perfect. Yeah, it's um it's definitely keeping me connected to what school life is like. But it's um it's reminding me actually of some of the huge, um beautiful public schools I've or they call private schools that I've visited in America. St. Paul's in Concord, New Hampshire, Phillips, Exeter, and Phillips Andover. That's the kind of vibe I'm getting from this.
0: Hmm. So, is it? I mean, is it quite a bit different than than what you experience on a day to day basis at Eton?
2: So, I've only read the first bit of the novel, so I'm not sure. Sure, I, I haven't got an impression yet of what the kind of. Lessons are alike in the school or anything, but yeah
3: right, there are right. definitely
2: some similarities there's they're in dormitories aren't they? the boys in this book, which is different to hear here all the boys have their own bedroom mm. I'm sure there have been legendary figures like Prescott who have walked around Eton in a cape carrying a cane. <laughs> I'm pretty sure
0: do the headmasters not wear capes and carry canes anymore? I feel like that should be a prerequisite.
2: It's, so all, all the teachers wear capes well, at 11.20am, <laughs> <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Um, that, that's just a standard daily thing. Is that not what happened at school with you?
0: <laughs> at home? <laughs> <laughs> at home, yes. When I was being homeschooled for those few years, there were a lot of capes, I will say. <laughs> well, let's, let's dive into this book a little bit um, because there, there are a few things that at least Sarah, Sarah Jane and I have been discussing offline, um, kind of going back and forth about one of them is a lot of the sort of what intertextual, the, the literary references to writers like Henry James. And I feel like we should talk a little bit about that. Um, and, and we'll do so in a minute. Um, but I wanted to, to, to ask kind of a broad, annoying question in some ways, but I was thinking a lot about the first the sort of structure of this book and how our narrator and then Auchincloss through the narrator is setting up the narrative that we have, we have going on here. And Matt, I was wondering if you could tell, could give me a summary of what you think is sort of the central, um, I was going to say conflict. I mean, just because that's sort of the, the the sort of (laughs) rote literary term, I guess, but what do you, what do you think this book is about? Um, because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's using this sort of form of, of letters and then the memoir and it's kind of goes back and forth in time. And in it, a lot of it is about the inner life of this person, Brian, Brian Aspinall, who's writing the letters. And we have this legendary figure of, of um, Prescott. <clears throat> but, but what would you say is this book is actually about as we're kind of going through all those different elements that Lock and Class is giving us, at least as, at least through the first five chapters? i was gonna say
1: based on the first five chapters yeah <laughs> um yeah so can i cheat and say what david hicks says it's about in norms of
0: nobility well sure you can always rely on a on a good good source <laughs> on a good authority yeah because <laughs> i think he i think he's i think you can see some of that
1: of his what he says being correct in the first five chapters he says that um you know that the book is about whether it's possible to do uh, education that the kind of education that we're talking about is classical education, but, you know, education that cultivates wisdom and virtue that teaches, that teaches somebody what the, what the right is and then to act on that. And that the book is about whether it's possible. And it examines that, you know, from, by looking at the way Dr. Prescott tried to do it. And then perhaps the way others, you know, helped along the way or, or, or contributed along the way. And then whether it was possible based on the actual results of St. Justin Martyr, the school. And I think you get, I think you get some of that. I mean, I think you see that in the first five chapters of um, you know, the stories that, that, that Aspinall tells us about students, the way students interact with Dr. Prescott when they come back or when they write him letters, you know, some of them telling him how wonderful he is in a almost kind of hagiography kind of way and uh and then <laughs> others telling him how awful he is <laughs> in a, in a, you know i i hate my life because of you
0: yeah i never felt like a man till i ripped up the prayer book you gave me yeah, yeah. exactly right so then you see this kind of you see that
1: it's it led to two very different kinds of students coming out of or what appears to be two very different kinds of students as graduates and you see that right here in the beginning and then you see the way you know aspinall is going about his business and being being a teacher at this school and, and recognizing his own deficiencies and weaknesses. And then how Dr. Prescott is even still teaching him, mm-hmm. cultivating wisdom and virtue in him, you know, trying to teach him how to be a man or how to be a teacher, how to be a leader or how to be a minister. as case. Mm.
0: Sarah Jane, obviously you can jump in whenever you want. <laughs> um, but I wanted to, um, do you, do you see what he's saying as sort of a, sort of a central conflict or more of a central theme?
2: Yes, I agree with Matt. It is I think it must be a book about how how education should work. It was interesting. There was one moment where I think it is maybe Horace talking about um Prescott, and he says that Greek and Latin don't really matter to him. It's more about cultivating a spark of interest. Actually, maybe it's Prescott himself who says it to um Brian Aspinall in the first bit. That, that education is about cultivating a spark of interest in in a young man. And mm. uh, he obviously likes football as well. <laughs> football is clearly very important. Um, which I think means that if you have a virtue, you need to be able to practice it too, and that maybe the sports field is a place where these virtues are played out. I don't know. Mm.
0: I was thinking a lot about how there are these repeatedly these discussions about the value or lack thereof of some sort of physical confrontation so you have the sort Mm. of repeated questions of football and Aspinall not valuing that at all and kind of getting reprimanded by everybody around him for not caring enough um, which kind of mirrors Horace actually um, when Horace was young but then also there's the snowball fights right and the discussion about um, what is it with hazing or something like that, and there's yeah. what does um, that
2: mean? Is that an American term for bullying?
0: Uh, would you say I, I would? I think that's a, I don't know that I would say it's bullying exactly. It's bullying with a purpose. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, it's more like it's, when somebody's it's kind, new. Of a,
1: it's kind of a yeah, it's like a rite of passage kind of a thing. But you you you're tough on them to to, to test them to make sure they're going to be tough enough to to join whatever it is you're doing your school your club your
0: whatever
2: right and to reaffirm a hierarchy perhaps as well
1: yes
0: oh yeah yes. Yeah. yeah i mean around here you'd most commonly hear it uh, and certainly negative well probably negatively in um like fraternities and sororities and things like that
2: okay yeah probably
0: because it has become bullying right yeah i think i, I don't know that that was over time yeah the intention ex- exactly uh at maybe we
2: should become a bit more sensitive i don't know
0: yeah maybe, maybe. Also, <laughs> I, th- I think there's also a question of uh we're probably not great with moderation
2: <laughs> mm.
0: um yeah
2: so you you asked about the structure of the book um mm-hmm. and what the book is about i wonder if it's also about how can you how does the writer tell a story about a character mm-hmm. from the exterior and so there are lots of references in the first five chapters to other epistolary novels. Yeah. And I wonder if... Um, I can't even say his name. I was calling him Auschenklos, but what, what is the name of the author again? Auken.
0: I, I, I always heard Aukenkloss, but I haven't... Oh, m-
2: okay. Yeah. I wondered if he wanted to sort of um, step into that tradition of epistolary novels. So he mentions Clarissa by mm-hmm. Richardson, and he's also... Um, Brian is reading The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins to The Boys in the Dorm at Night and both of those are epistolary novels. So maybe it's mm. something about how do you construct a character from the exterior by a series of different perspectives? Mm. Just looking at how, how do we actually know people from the outside?
0: Mm. So for people who aren't familiar with that term, can you, can you just give a quick definition of an epistolary novel?
2: it's a novel based on a series of letters an epistle is a letter so So,
0: yeah one of the things i was thinking about that's really fascinating about this novel and i was wondering if i was going to ask you this um do you know of any other such novels any other uh, epistolary novels that also bring in like memoir or other you know like other different sort of variations on that
1: isn't Dracula is Dracula's is epistles, uh, diary entries, um, newspaper clippings? There's all kinds of stuff in there, right? Huh.
0: Mm. So maybe this is imitating Dracula. That would be a very interesting uh, book to keep in mind as we're reading this, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: The other one that sprang <laughs> to mind was um, As I Lay Dying by Faulkner. Hmm. Yeah. Just in terms of narrative perspective, I, I I'm not sure. There are many more kind of comparisons to be made than that. But
0: well, that is interesting. I mean it, um yeah, that's another one. That's interesting. I'm gonna keep those two in mind as we're going. I don't have much to say about that now, but it does I could sit here and think about it for a while in silence and you guys could talk. <laughs> um I, I was but I was fascinated by the the varieties of you know, even the challenge by by an author like Achenklas or Faulkner, whoever, to to present um like a a consistent voice from each of the different Mm. perspectives. So we've got Brian Aspinall's diaries and he, and he's got a very specific way that he's presenting Brian's voice in his letters. It's, he's writing for himself. Brian is, but then he also is writing in his own voice and Aachen has to be able to, to capture that voice. But then when he switches over to Horace's memoirs, for example, or some of the later perspectives, those have to be, you, their own unique voices as well. And I wonder if that's why this is one of those books that is really beloved by writers because it has to capture, it's like writing four different kinds of like four different books is four different. It's not just writing from the perspective of a character who is having a dialogue with somebody, but you have to get inside the head of multiple characters and then tell a story from their perspective in their own voice, with their own way of speech and all that kind of stuff. Those, those kind of elements. So I, I think in that way it makes it he that must have been a very real challenge and something that he was up against. Um, so I was wondering, Sarah Jane, if you or Matt, um, but Sarah Jane, since you you were just talking um, I think you said this offline that you're teaching Dickens in in, in the Eaton Library with the original with yeah, the original magazine. Right. I I was wondering if you were teaching a book like this to to your class, your group of High school, What is it? what do you call it there? <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: it's high school, a teenager. So,
0: yeah. yeah, if you're teaching it to teenage boys, say, um, how much time would you spend examining the differences between these different voices? I mean, we can do it on the podcast if we're interested. We could just follow our bliss, so to speak. But when you're teaching it, would you spend time looking at the differences in, in voice and between these different narrators?
2: Yeah, I think that would be time well spent. It's It's part of... I suppose, trying to understand what's, what's being said as well, isn't it, by listening to the voice that's speaking to you. And um, it's interesting for me because I haven't read the whole novel yet, so I've only heard a couple of characters so sure. far. Yeah. And, um, there, yeah, there are things about tone and structure that are very different between Horace and Brian. What did you, I mean, what are your impressions of Brian through his voice? What do people think about him?
0: Matt, I'll I'll let you answer that one first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I can go,
1: I guess. <laughs> uh, Brian. Well, Brian just said he's a very interesting person to me, but in a... I don't know. For, I mean, for me, it's, he's kind of sad. Like, mm. he's really, really passive. And um, soft, maybe, is the word I want to use. And But what's interesting is that... In in that sense, he and Horace are not that different, mm. except Horace is. Horace has accepted who he is, and so he has mm. a, he has a confidence in it that that as, that Brian doesn't have, have, and so Brian seems to seems to be fighting it or or, or trying to, anyways. But like that opening. And well, that's not the very opening line, but they're in the early opening lines there, the first paragraph he says he says, the best way for the passive man to overtake his more <laughs> active brothers is to write them up. Right? So say, like, I I can't be a better person than somebody like Dr. Prescott, but I can be a be- I can't be a better person myself, but I can be a better person by writing about a better person, which I think yes. is Kind of an interesting way of uh, addressing one's passivity. <laughs> it,
0: calls to, it calls to mind the conversation that Horace and Brian have, I think, in Chapter Four, where Brian is saying, "Oh, can I read this? What you wrote about Prescott?" And uh, or, "I'd like to hear your your stories or whatever." And and Horace is like, "What are you going to write a book about him?" <laughs> Uh, or something like that, <laughs> right. and then and then uh, he's like, "Well, I, I don't, maybe <laughs> I don't remember exactly what he said." But then he and then, sort the Horace had written this book about him as well. Um, so so yeah, they they don't they don't feel like they are as you know uh, uh, magnetic or you know successful or uh, important or whatever as Prescott. But the way to the way to approximate that is by by writing about them. What does it say about writers? No. <laughs> Writing
2: must be a a kind of hero worship, isn't it? I remember reading about Thomas Hardy's wife being um, absolutely distraught and furious with him because she was convinced that he was in love with Tess Hmm. and um, that this was adulterous, that um, the writers themselves kind of get absorbed by the characters and forget about real life. I don't know. It Hmm. was, I was wondering as well if, um, there's a sense that Brian, as Matt said, he's really passive and maybe is looking for an identity or Mm. looking for a role model elsewhere. So another similarity between Brian and Horace is that both of them, their parents die relatively young. So Brian is kind of an orphan when he comes to Mm. um, Justin Martyr, although he's, he's 27 years old. And it says that Horace's father, I think, dies when he's 30. Mm. And then and both of them seem to hero worship Prescott and, um, and obviously want to write about him mm. as a means of, I don't know, discovering something about who they are, perhaps. There's, there's um, all the things that Horace says about um, Prescott's vision for this school that he wants to create. And, and Horace kind of says, I didn't have any direction until he made that statement. And then I wanted to follow and get on board with that. Idea. So hmm. that's right. I, I agree completely with Matt that the two characters are very similar.
0: There's the really interesting line in the first paragraph of the book, right before what Matt is mentioning, um, where he says, I've always wanted to keep a journal, but whenever I'm about to start one, I'm dissuaded by the idea that it is too late. I lose heart when I think of all the fascinating things I could have described had I only begun earlier. And it, I kept thinking that in, it almost feels like he's saying, you know, I lose heart to all the things that I could have done had I only started earlier, and and in some ways, you know, maybe he's looking at someone like Prescott or Hor- you mm-hmm. know Horace looking at Prescott and, and seeing the things that 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 Prescott can accomplish, partly be by sheer force of will, by his personality, by you know by being kind of who he is, that he's able to accomplish these things, and and Brian's feeling like, oh, I haven't ever accomplished. I haven't done anything yet, you know? Um, yes. and, and feeling like, what What am I possibly going to do? He doesn't even, he doesn't, you mentioned that, Matt, you mentioned that Horace maybe knows who he is a little more. And Brian's trying to figure out, he's trying to understand who he is. He's trying to figure out, am I going to go to divinity school? Do I become a minister? Is Am I even meant to teach these boys? Uh, you know, what is it that I'm actually supposed to be doing? And so this journal, in a sense, maybe is a, a sort of self-discovery as much as it is sort of an ode to Prescott. But also there's this question of, before too long, time's going to have passed me by and I'm going to have run out of chances to accomplish anything big like what Prescott did. Sarah, Sarah you were going to say
2: something. Um, no, I was listening. I think that's true. And maybe the idea is, isn't it, that he's just lived through the death of both his parents and he's been nursing them. Mm. And kind of one of the next things that happens to him is that he, he spends time with Mrs. Prescott, Harriet Prescott, contemplating her life with her. And I think one of the tensions in the novel is between what, yeah, what makes a great life and what makes a great work of art, because Prescott is a kind of plot-focused type character, it seems. He always wants action to be done, whereas mm. his wife um, likes to kind I'm of: contemplate with And at one point, I think. Um, Brian says to Harriet, I wanted her to stop talking and just to realize that her life has been a work of art. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's a bit of a kind of interplay between those things, especially in, in the way the novel's written as well. I mean, it, does it have a plot or is it more sort of series of portraits?
3: Yeah, okay. Well, do, you, do you think that. Sorry. Go ahead, Matt.
1: Sorry. Go, or...
0: No, there's that internet yeah. lag. We're no, got
1: do yeah. Do you do you think that um there's a kind of a shift there with Prescott even when with with the situation with his wife because it's almost like it's almost like his vision for the school has been to create him like recreate mm-hmm. his students in his, his image where they are active and plot driven and you know, mo- movers and shakers and actors, which is, which is interesting because then it makes the students who wrote the letter saying, I never felt like more of a man until I did X, um, actually a su- successes if, if perhaps mm. that's his goal. But, mm. but then, so, so then when, but he wants his teachers to be that way too, right? So when Brian shows up, yeah. it's like, Hey, you have to be involved with football because that's what we do here that's how I'm going to turn you into me. He doesn't say those words, of course, but um, that's perhaps what he's trying to do. But then he himself, does, does he himself have a moment where he's not just, he's not just winking at the fact that Brian is skipping out on football and spending time reading to his wife, to Prescott's wife, but actually sees that as a good in and of itself. And... And not not a trade off, but this is a good way of being, mm. and that's when he's mm. and that's when he's
2: willing to retire and step down and just be
3: hmm.
2: rather than do. There's that brilliant moment um, at the fireplace, isn't there, where he Prescott talks about Tennyson's Ulysses.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: Who do do you know that poem at all?
0: Yeah, Odysseus. The one that
2: ends to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Where Ulysses has been at home with Penelope for a long time, and then he, he's sort of restless and wants to go off again because he feels that he's mm-hmm. not making the most of himself. I thought, I thought it was interesting that that's who Prescott <laughs> looks to as he's just about to retire, um, especially when we learn yeah. later in the, in the next bit that he'd always hated Tennyson, but kind of... <laughs> now in his yeah. 80s he's sort of <laughs> come around to the idea that there's something about Ulysses that Tennyson had noticed that maybe is true about him I'm trying to find the page yeah. I don't know if either of you have it
0: it's on 55 in the elite. well yeah yeah. You, you you have scans of my book so it's on 55 <clears throat> the top um, yeah that's it the years have taken me how from Browning you know? to Tennyson
2: yeah how do you know Horace that the yeah. work of Noble Note remains for me to do He doesn't want to stop.
0: (laughs) One of the interesting things about that poem, I think, is that you know I I know a lot of people who hate that poem. Like our friend Heidi thinks that that's just completely misunderstanding uh, Ulysses or Odysseus or whoever, Mm. which is a fair case. I I think there's that case to be made. But it's also Mm. a poem about he wants to go not because he doesn't like being home per se, but because he part of it is that he feels like he has prepared Telemachus, like it's Telemachus is ready to to do his job. Um, that he's ready to take over, I think. I think that that's part of what Ulysses is sort of look, realizing anyway, that he's not mm. as useful as he as he once was. And maybe he's not necessary anymore in terms of, he has come back and he has pres- he has restored the kingdom. You know, we just read the Odyssey, right? So he's just restored the kingdom and he's been there, he's preserved it. And now that preservation has to fall into somebody else's hands. And thus he doesn't, that's why he doesn't feel as useful. And so that's, mm. if you think about it from that perspective with Prescott, maybe he had, maybe he feels like he has, He has done his job. He has, you know, built this kingdom and he has trained these people. And now it's time to, the preservation now has to belong to somebody else because you can't, you know, you can't preserve something. It's not going to be preserved if you are the last, the only person who has ever, you know, led it. Um, You know, once you die, the preservation falls into someone else's hands. Um, Mm. And so I think maybe there's something of that going on where he, he didn't like, maybe he doesn't like, um, when he was younger he doesn't like Tennyson he doesn't like that poem for the same reason maybe that Heidi doesn't like it that, she, that it doesn't get Odysseus but then when he's old he's looking back and he's, he's realizing that, that what Tennyson was doing there with Ulysses' character is something that maybe only an old person can, an older person can truly feel in their soul um, and so what, he's what feeling if- something that he wouldn't have been capable of feeling when he was younger
3: What if? um,
1: What if? Because when he was younger, he viewed Justin Martyr as the Odyssey, the the journey itself. Mm. Mm. But now he views as opposed to now he views Justin Martyr as the Penelope or as the Ithaca. Right now it's settled, and now now he sees that he's like Odysseus or or Ulysses, rather than needs to needs to go on and hand it over to others. Mm. But before, before Justin Martyr was the thing that he was odysseying through, I've heard back in the better term, journeying mm. <laughs> through.
2: I also find there's yeah. quite a lot of irony in the conversations between Haverstock and Prescott that they, they never quite mean what they actually say straight up. There's some kind of,
3: there's some well, That's kind just of called a- friendship. <laughs>
2: Going on between them. Yeah, I think I I actually I think that's written really well in the novel and how Brian is observing it and also isn't sure where to position himself.
0: Yeah, and um, sometimes he even feels like they don't even know that he's there.
2: Yes. And of course, at this point, Brian doesn't know that there's a joke going on here and that Prescott used to hate Tennyson. But it's one of the things that they bonded over when they met, first met in school.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's that right after this, the next couple paragraphs down, there's the bit where they kind of start um, Prescott's got his, it says he turns his back to his fire and then his face is drawn down in an expression of bitterness. So so Brian sees bitterness anyway. That's how he sees it. Mm. And then he grips the mantle with both of his hands and kicks a log viciously. So this Prescott in action again, right? Like his contemplation is very active as you guys were describing. And then he said, nobody's scared of me. Sometimes I wish they were. And then <laughs> um, Horace says, Harriet would have told you the same thing. And then Prescott yells at him, oh, go to bed, Horace, and stop croaking. You just want everyone else's world to come apart as yours has. Yeah. And then Havistock doesn't even care. Um, and then he asks him Brian to go fetch his valet. But then when he comes back, they're laughing together. And so you almost wonder, like, are they playing... Yeah. He feels like they could have been playing a joke on him. Or it's just that their friendship is such that they can say these things to one another and then be over it in a few minutes. Um,
2: and it shows how Brian is is on the outside, even though he's the first person... Narrator, he still can't quite understand mm-hmm. the characters.
0: Which, in that way, is the sort of perfect mirror for us as the readers, as we're trying to understand mm. larger-than-life character.
2: Well, I, I found. I that, wonder um, what
0: happens if you read it. Sorry, my lag. No,
2: no, go on, Matt.
1: Okay, um, I wonder if I wonder what happens if you read it with. Like taking those kinds of statements, like when he says, Oh, shut up and go to bed, you just want the world to fall apart, like everyone else's world to fall apart, like yours has. And then there seems to be like 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 Horace would deny that or, or does deny that, right? It's not that's not true. Um, but and so they like, they keep making these ribs at each other, these these accusations at each other, and there seems to be this kind of re- denial that it that is true. They're both they're both misobserving the other. But what but but then, for us, it does, it's if I don't know. For me, it feels like he's like they're right. Like what, like what Prescott accuses Horace of. Prescott's actually right, even if even though Horace denies it. And then what Horace is saying about Prescott, his observations are actually right, um, even though Prescott would deny it. And even if even though Brian might not always see it that way for either of them too. So mm-hmm. I wonder if if the irony is like, I, it's irony between the characters, but then at a deeper level, it's. There's a
3: truthfulness to it as well, you know. Mm.
2: Yeah, Am that's I...
0: sort of there's some something Shakespearean about that.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: um Yeah. What were you going to say?
2: So, I don't know. I wonder if there's a sense that Brian, even at this point, is because of his reverence for Prescott, he's maybe a bit envious of the relationship between Haverstock mm-hmm. and Prescott. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's fascinating. All the little bird mm-hmm. similes and metaphors were kind of sparking my interest as well. I don't know what you thought of those. Go on. <laughs> um, it seems that Brian always compares people to birds. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's either a vulture or a hawk every time. <laughs> and What's I don't the- know if that's the the author having a joke on, on Brian or if, if that's, Significant in some way, I don't know. But Mrs. Havistock, Uh, Mrs. Prescott is described as a turkey vulture. And then pretty much everyone else is described as a hawk. Huh.
3: Mr. Ives,
1: Ives, he calls Mr. Ives that,
2: right? Mr. Ives, he calls Prescott that when Prescott comes in, is kind of looking over his shoulder when he's reading in the dormitory. And he calls um, Havistock. A hawk at one point, and then a vulture in this bit that we were just looking at. Hmm. Don't know, something to do with birds of prey. I don't know what you, <laughs> what theories you might have about that
0: that's a, that's interesting. I never thought about that, so maybe we should just um sit here silently and think about it for a minute and then see what we can or we could just talk and see what happens.
2: Old haverstock is too practiced a vulture
0: yeah so so okay, so. Who uh, that's what that's what, where is that? What line where page is that?
2: That's um on page 55 as well, down towards the bottom.
0: Okay, so have so he's saying that in his journal to himself, but he's reflecting on Havistock. It's not mm-hmm. it's not Prescott saying it. To Maybe it goes to back to
2: what, what Matt was saying about Brian being passive that he sees himself as some kind of prey to all these vicious birds. I don't know.
0: Well, he says, to practiced a vulture to have come prematurely to the scene of demission. It's like he he shows up in the moment of chaos or after someone something's bad has already happened to someone. He didn't show up in Mm -hmm. time for for, to be there when Harriet was dying or when she was sick or when even in the immediate aftermath he comes. You know he comes later and kind of like when there's when when it's just you know
2: the uh, the tragedy. I suppose. Or if he's turned up at the at just the right time to kind of pick at the corpse of um, Prescott's dead. Career. Mm. It's a bit ominous.
0: Yeah, it, it is a little. It is. The, I mean, maybe that's maybe that's some foreshadowing there. <laughs> and then the very next line, I think it's interesting. Prize day and Mister Havistock's Seed have borne bitter fruit. Mm. Prescott made the announcement of his retirement at the close of the ceremonies, and it came as a complete surprise and shocked his audience. <clears throat> you wonder what sort of agency then. Havistock has like how much power I guess it maybe is another word what kind of power does he have or influence does he have over Prescott in a way that yeah. no one else would have had like would anybody else have been able to come and show him or reveal to him or convince to him depending on how you look at it that he should retire would, would that anybody right. else have that kind of power
2: does I mean Matt might have a sort of superior insight into this having read the whole novel but for me it was really surprising after encountering Havistock in that conversation to then r- realize the kind of lengths he goes to to make friends with Prescott and how mm. at the beginning, um, Horace is very much the underdog and, and Frank wants nothing to do with him. So something's happened where there's been this change in their relationship.
0: Mm. Yeah, so here at the end, he's the one that has something of a, he has some kind of a sway or upper hand over Prescott, mm. whereas early on Prescott was just the one who, dominated the and determined he dictated the terms of the relationship. Yeah. Do you is there anything you can say about this, Matt, without giving things away?
1: Um so I lost my signal just for a second. Um so what is Germany Germany. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Um you would think they'd have better engineering over here, but <laughs>
0: Hey, I just want to take a quick break to uh, give you a word from our sponsors, our friends over at Gutenberg College. We all know we live in a messy and complex world, yet so often we oversimplify critical issues about humanity, culture, and ultimate reality. Bombarded with soundbites, biased research, and fragmented narratives, we may wonder how we even begin thinking about today's issues and how to live a worthy life in the face of them. But what if there were a way to get clarity about the causes of our problems and the many solutions proposed to them? What if there were a way to understand people, culture, and yourself at a deeper level so that you could live with purpose, integrity, and wisdom? At Gutenberg College, there is. Gutenberg College in Eugene, Oregon offers a unique BA in liberal arts grounded in the great books and a biblical worldview. Authors like Plato, Einstein, and St. Augustine pen the works that have shaped the world as we know it. And theirs are just a few of the deep voices Gutenberg students hear as they join a conversation that has continued for thousands of years. When you understand the past, you can thrive in the present and navigate the future. You can know how to care for others, serve with confidence in your vocation, and stay true to what matters most. To find out more about how a Gutenberg education can help you cultivate wisdom that will serve you for a lifetime, visit www.gutenberg.edu slash preview. Again, that's www.gutenberg.edu slash preview. And now back to the episode.
1: So are you referring still to the the references to the birds and and treating or referring to Oh, you're talking about the friendship between
0: Horace and Frank, how it develops. Yeah, she was just saying you may have a superior insight, I believe, was the way she aptly put it. Um, That because you've read (laughs) the whole book, we were talking about the idea of how the upper hand in the relationship seems to change. Because early on, when we're reading the memoirs of Horace, it's clear that Prescott has the upper hand in the relationship. But now, but here in chapter four, at the end of their lives, it's clear that Horace has some sort of an influence over Prescott's, you know, some an ability to convince him, for example, to retire, or at least reveal to him something that, conv- that, that does convince him to retire. I was saying, do you have anything you can add to that? Anything you want to preview that wouldn't give things away?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, well, if, even if we just limit it to chapter five, I think that there's some clues in there that frank is not i've look i've already in 40 minutes i've already gone to calling him by his first name he's no longer dr Prescott, mm, so he's just yeah. frank um <laughs> <laughs> so in uh um but in chapter five he i like he i mean so all through the first five chapters of the book the image that we get in is as you as you mentioned earlier on sarah Jane. and he's this you know um larger than life figure swooping around the campus with his with his cape and his cane and and uh and everybody just gets out of his way and and he apparently had that had that reputation even as a even as a child or as a teenager but then but then there's still there's still clues in chapter five that that back then he was susceptible to somebody like Horace, right? Because mm-hmm. When when Horace makes the decision, when Horace takes the upper hand and says, I'm done, this relationship's over. It's more painful for me to be friends with him, to be around him, than it is like he does like a return on investment analysis, right? And it says, It's it's worse for me to be around him than it is to be away from him. Um and it's Frank who comes back and says, No, basically, no, we're just, we're gonna be friends. Come on, let's do this, mm-hmm. you know and and kind of goes back. I mean, he does it in a frank way, right? Like there's not like Horace points out, and that was the apology. They go and sit in the <laughs> um, chapel, don't they? He doesn't, say, he doesn't say, I'm sorry, but yes, that's right. They, they go and sit in the chapel and then he's, and then it says, and and that was the apology, right? There is saying, let's go, and they go into the chapel. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I can find that passage other than it's in chapter it. five, but I can't remember. Um, Page
2: 75.
1: But there seems to be an admission that Frank there seems to be an admission that Frank needs him or at least wants him a lot, you know, to be around, right? And so that that Frank is vulnerable in some sense, but it's like it's a different kind of vulnerability than definitely than what Ryan has.
2: There's a really interesting comment on their friendship um, towards the end of chapter five from Horace, where Horace talks metaphorically about their friendship as that between a husband and a wife and then it's interesting that Horace turns up after mm. the death of Harriet
0: mm. and he goes out of his way oh, to make it not be sexual yeah. you know like to claim
2: yeah he says what a reader of the last sentence would jump over a Freudian moon <laughs> <laughs> I belong to a simpler and less polluted generation <laughs> but in a Bostonian accent obviously
0: Oh uh, yeah of course yeah that's right. oh man hey top of page 75 your bird thing so that's why we're going to oxford and then frank winked let's put it up <laughs> killing two birds with one stone there's no way that Aachen class as a good writer yeah. writes frank winked and then says let's put it that i'm killing two birds with one stone after referencing hawks and vultures so often there's no way that's not on purpose that's i think gonna be just... a little joke
2: we need to keep an eagle eye out for these bird references. There's some kind of aviary oh. metaphor going on here.
0: There's that English English wit right oh, there. Sorry.
2: <laughs> I was going to say, David, you're already feathering your nest now. But,
0: <laughs> I, th- I feel like if we just gave you 10 minutes, you could probably do some good stand up comedy on a bird routine or something.
2: I'm completely not funny at all. <laughs>
0: is it? <laughs> I'm very serious. Is it, is it Brian's name?
1: Uh, a kind of tree or or connected to trees, right aspinwall the aspen isn't he so is is Brian a place for birds to
3: nest?
2: oh that's brilliant, huh
0: Aspenwall is a burrow in on the allegheny River in Pennsylvania. I'm just doing a quick Google search. <laughs> I'm just wondering if this th- like I mean an asp is definitely a a tree, right so or no?
2: An asp is a, a snake. Is a it's a snake.
0: snake. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's interesting too. <laughs> asp <laughs> in wall.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. That is interesting.
0: Oh, a snake in the wall.
3: I don't know why
1: there I was lots of that. Um,
2: there are lots <laughs> of references to architecture in the first chapter, weren't there? Um, about the kind of austerity of the campus of Justin Martyr. And then as Brian starts to enjoy himself and like the place more, it seems he says something like, even the bricks had softened. Hmm. Um, And I've, I've been trying to picture what the school would look like. And there was a reference to an architect quite early on who, um, do you know the, um, is it Trinity Church in Boston, which has a kind of classical look to it by HH Richardson. Have you seen that church? It's kind of opposite Boston Public Library.
0: I haven't, I haven't seen it, but ironically, I'm going to Boston uh-huh. in November, it looks like. So ah. I'm going to have to go there. Um,
2: that's referred to on page three. And so that's kind of the picture I have of the campus in my head, that it's, it is quite imposing and Romanesque. He says that it has a certain leaning to heaviness suggestive of some medieval monastery in southern France.
0: Yeah. God, and as usual, this, has done a better job than man.
2: Yeah, and that this looks a bit like um, Prescott himself. That he's also this kind of stocky. um, It's
0: got rotundas and long colonnades.
2: Handsome character. So
0: can so would how is that? I mean, how is that different than the schools in in England? I mean, like, I don't even know if that's something that you can. I mean, for people, because not everybody's obviously been there. We could we could all just Google it, I suppose
2: when was Trinity Baptist Church, Trinity Church in Boston built? Because <coughs> um, somewhere like Westminster in London, that school was built in the 12th century, I think in the 1100s. hundreds. So um, that has some very, very old sections. Um, and from my experience of seeing American schools, they're very beautiful and classically proportioned, but they are neoclassical. Um, Eton has, uh, so the church was built in 1440, so that's uh, gothic. And then the quad, the main schoolyard, looks a lot like Hampton Court Palace, so that's kind of Renaissance architecture, red brick. Um, It's very beautiful.
0: Trinity Church in Boston was 1733. Yeah, so... Yeah, it does have a kind of an imposing thing about it, doesn't it? Matt just texted me the aspen wall name meaning. Matt, do you wanna you wanna say something about that?
1: Well, I cheated and I did a little bit of Googling. And mm-hmm. so I found two things of, that may be interest of interest. According to Google, aspenwall m- comes from aspen meaning growing with aspen trees. from so this is from the old English and then wall meaning stream. So there's a stream growing with aspen trees. Oh. Apparently, what Brian's name means. But then, Ives, Mister Ives, Ives means an archer's bow, huh. which is of course what you would shoot birds out of the sky well, with, right? an archer's bow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> He's referred to as well as a martinet, which um, has got nothing to do with Martin the birds, but you know, we could force <laughs> it if we want to. <laughs>
1: I don't, I don't, I didn't even notice the bird thing. So now this is like fascinating to me. I'm all caught up in it because I didn't even notice
2: that he describes everybody with a relationship with a relation to a bird of some sort. I, I
3: thought he, he does it's that. It's
2: either a bird or it's a bird plus what books they read. The only one who doesn't really get a bird is uh, the awful history teacher who's described as intellectually flabby, um, Ruggle. Is he called Ruggle?
0: <laughs> yeah. So that's it. So then, our, so then maybe there is a. Well, it's just interesting that he would use a sort of a natural, you know he says that line on page three that, as usual, God did better than God's god God, as usual, has done a better job than man. So it's mm-hmm. interesting, and, he, and he's talking there about the difference, like the grounds themselves, uh, the the glory of the elm trees mm-hmm. uh, and the, and there everything's lightened by the profusion of verdurous verdure. I can never pronounce this name. I'm just going with that, lawns and hedges and by the glory of elm trees. And so it's interesting then that he's perhaps equating the intellectual life and the spiritual life with something in the natural world Mm. in the face of the sort of imposition that is the grounds um, of a place like this, which he then compares to, as as you mentioned, Sarah Jane, to to Prescott.
2: Yes, and isn't there something about... I I hope I'm not skipping forward too much now. Oh, don't worry about it. Uh, That when Frank is a young man at Oxford, one thing he likes to do is cycle around looking at castles. And it says there's something of the fortress. There there are aspects of the fortress everywhere uh, in Justin Martyr. And so perhaps it's something to do with Prescott's love of the medieval and of chivalry that has been um, designed into the school itself.
1: Doesn't, doesn't um, Horace call it Frankenstein, though? Is he, what is he referring to? He calls Prescott Frankenstein,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's on 76. Yeah, on
1: 76, he says, like Frankenstein, he had been locked away in a mental laboratory creating his monster. Oh, he's talking about probably the, everything about the school, right? Like the... The school being the monster? and all The way it was going to be run. Yeah. That's, that's how I That's how I took it, yeah. So that, is, that would be interesting that, that Brian sees Justin Martyr the way he does, mm. but then Horace sees it as a kind of monster that's been
0: created. Well, interestingly, right. he says that he's afraid that it's going to swallow him.
2: If that's right. And isn't there something as well? It, I can't remember the quotation exactly, but... Um, Prescott doesn't care about beauty, is what Horace thinks and what Brian thinks. And that he cares more about strength. Hmm.
3: Hmm.
2: And that's that's definitely true about Frankenstein's creature. Is that he's he's hmm. like a fortress, but he isn't particularly beautiful.
0: I mean, is his name being Frank Prescott a little bit on the nose there? <laughs> And that, <laughs> and that his best friend or one of his oldest friends are f- calling him frankenstein that's kind of mm. but you know it's interesting because he says that he said the top of 77 at the end of chapter five this is horse i used to visualize frank's god with a little shudder as a despondent general sitting chin in hand on a camp stool by a tent like one of those lithographs of napoleon and russia surveying the field of that day's defeat and waiting for a miracle in the morning that's such an complex theological bit of, um, you know, confusion going on there in, mm. uh, in, in, in Horace that we could probably spend 30 minutes talking about just by itself. But it's interesting that he's, he says that right after saying that he thinks the school is going to, going to swallow him and having spoken, having discussed how Frank was, it absolutely had to be, you know, a, a school with spiritual intentions. And mm. that it seems that that's, you know he talks a lot about his own the differences between his family and Prescott's family in terms of how they viewed the church and for mm. for Horace's family for the Havistock clan. It was about appearances, right? Um, and and the, and Prescott, despite maybe his um, lack of attention to beauty, for him, it's something much more than that. And that might be where um, uh, Brian and his his own questions about whether he should be a minister, Maybe that's why he finds Prescott so appealing in some way, and why he doesn't feel like he's being swallowed up by the school in the way that Horace does. Because for Horace, it's the the monster is the the monster is so tied to Frank's God to use his quote, whereas mm. that's appealing to Brian. It's not appealing to Horace. Yeah,
2: and in the same way that Frankenstein and the creature throughout the story, Shelley's story, become almost inextricable and become to, they come to reflect each other more and more. I thought that that metaphor you read, sorry, it's a simile, isn't it? Is there a sense as well that Horace is saying that Prescott is a bit like Napoleon, and Prescott's God is a bit like Prescott?
3: Mm.
0: Yeah. Say that, Say that one more time. I want to think about that.
2: Well, we're told that that Prescott is, he's five foot six, isn't he? Like Napoleon, he's quite short. He's handsome, stocky. He's um, hes a bit of a military strategist in the way that he does things. And he certainly speaks a lot about how the war should be conducted. And I wonder if Horace is sort of saying that Prescott, Prescott's God is a bit like Prescott, that maybe they're similar, that there's a kind of strange oh, yeah, yeah. idolatry going on.
0: It is kind of interesting that he says specifically Napoleon and Russia.
3: <laughs>
0: mm. The day, surveying the defeat, waiting for a miracle. So is, is that meant to suggest that the way Horace looks at it is Frank's looking at desolation and hoping f- that a miracle is going to change things? Is that supposed to be he's the way he's looking at his school? Or is this meant to be something representing something earlier? Well, he says he used to visualize Frank that way.
2: I think it's maybe something as well about his tenacity that even in the face of all kinds of opposition he's he's not going to give up although this is about Frank's God but I think it is also about Frank himself they, the two seem to be inseparable
0: yeah but he says Frank's father his own faith and his projected school were all inextricably intertwined
2: Mm. We don't. I don't know much about Frank's father yet. Maybe that's something we learn later in the in the book.
0: I was just wondering: did did Napoleon's father die when he was young, or is there some you know other other comparisons that can be drawn between Napoleon and Frank? We know that that Frank's father died during the Civil War in Virginia.
3: Hmm. I bet there's a painting, there's probably a particular painting that Alkin Klaas is referencing, maybe. Hmm. Oh, right. Yeah. And that's in there but but that
2: Horace is imagining. Yeah, maybe there's a work of art behind it. Didn't you find this? Um, I can see why writers love this book. It's, it's a sort of tapestry of intertextual references to other works of poetry and literature. Um, and architects and artists and sort of artisans and I was often having to look up all these different little um kind of names being dropped all over the place
0: (laughs) yeah we should talk about that before we go um and I guess we're coming up on our time here um we, we you mentioned in particular uh, Sarah jane off offline. you mentioned to me the all the Henry James references in those first couple of chapters, particularly in the conversations between harriet prescott and and Brian and Prescott himself, Frank Prescott makes fun of them for <laughs> for loving Henry James, or at least certain the the more minor Henry James books, I suppose. um you mentioned that you read some henry james in college do you do you feel then that that not knowing who some of these people are or being able to draw the connections between, um, between the books, the intertextual connections and things like that is makes the experience of reading the book lesser. Like you're lacking something like you, you need to know those things to get the book or makes the experience less enjoyable, I guess is another way of asking it.
2: I think alking King Klaus is quite demanding of his reader. And that if, if the reader knows those references, there's a kind of vision here that perhaps betrays things about the story. I mean, there there are lots of... So, I mean, Harriet Prescott, what do you think of her? She's always referencing Parisians. And then her husband thinks that she believes she is actually a character in Henry James's novel, The Ambassadors, which I haven't read. But from what I read about the story the character Stratham is sent as an ambassador to Paris to bring someone home and sort of falls in love with Paris and then we learn that she lived in Paris and um one of the things her husband seems to criticize her for is her inability to distinguish between art and life and that she wants to make her life into art self um whereas I think there's a perhaps something to do with a more kind of Lutheran strain of, of Prescott that he's he's like, no, art and life are separate. You can't mm. mix those things up.
0: Well, I was thinking a lot about how the, one of the reasons that Havistock has to leave is is because of the war encroaching on Paris, right? He leaves just in time, or France anyway. And and meanwhile, Harriet had fallen in love with it. So as Paris is falling, you know, is that's at the same time as the war is happening, encroaching on I mean, that's at the same time that Harriet is dying, right?
2: Ah, yeah, right. And and That's, then
0: Yeah. And and then um Havistock keeps referencing what Proust and uh he even mentions oh he mentions Fitzgerald, right? Because he says there's only a couple of writers that are any good and um doesn't doesn't uh um Brian say what even not not Hemingway or Fitzgerald or something.
2: Yeah, they all get written off as corrupted yeah. by modernity. Yeah. But then he
0: mentions how at one point he had made friends with Fitzgerald, and those guys are so they are they are Harriet, right? They 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 left mm. America they, in the twenties or the teens in the twenties. They go to Paris, and there's this whole generation of writers, of American writers in particular, mm. who who lived in Paris, who were a huge part of the culture there. You can go mm. to the places in Paris where these people hung out, right? It's like a whole literary tour of Paris and France, I guess, even Spain to some degree, right, Matt? <laughs> um, but the way they went to Europe and they they yeah. they built American culture on. While in, and I, I believe on the structures of Europe at the time, right mm. as Europe is about to to collapse into this chaos, right, and uh, well, I guess I guess it's between the wars, right, that Fitzgerald would have and Hemingway would have been there because they were all, they were in the army during World War One. Yeah, what's the between
2: name wars? of the patron, the woman whose house they used to meet in? Stein, Gertrude Stein. That's yeah. it. Yeah, but yeah, it's really interesting. Prescott is this kind of. Roman. He's like an antique Roman who who kind of draws straight lines and he says, that was art, but corrupt art. Whereas mm. we find out that Prescott is someone who kind of maybe likes the decadence of Swinburne, even though he won't allow himself to indulge in it.
0: Yeah, well, that was Swinburne's own problem, right? <laughs> um,
2: isn't,
1: isn't there something too with um, with Prescott is like, like, those are all people who who kind of abandoned America and then went over to Europe and then participated in a culture that could eventually lead to, you know, world war II. Um, and he was, he was one of those people that stayed, stayed in and was loyal to America, just like his father, right. Um, like his father fought in the, I mean, he went to the South, but he fought in the war for what was right about America. Um, and that, and Prescott is the, his Frank's the same way, right. He, he stayed, in america and he built this school to make good american leaders um and then all of these authors like then you know he meets and marries his wife and then she becomes somebody who had been who had left and gone to paris and fell in love with it Mm. comes back to america and her continuing to read and participate in those authors is kind of saying you didn't win
3: Mm.
1: right even though i'm here with you i still love paris i you know, I'm still with those guys, right? Uh, yeah. I, I still believe in what they believed in.
2: And her last word is crebillon. She's making reference to this sort of salacious French writer. Hmm. And that, the, the last that's the last thing she says. And her husband says something like, oh, that's just like Harriet to say something so rebellious and decadent. Hmm.
1: That's right. So, but, but he loves that about her, yeah. doesn't he, in that scene? Yeah, yeah. Because he kind of, he loves that about her
0: in that scene. So that's, that's good, you know? It's, I like what she said about referencing his father because it, his father literally died to preserve the country. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that seems like what Prescott has been trying to do for so long. He's trying to create people who will preserve the culture that his father died for. And I guess that's what Havistock is saying when he's saying that they're so connected together. The school and his father are intertwined. And maybe the school is his attempt to, to make his father's death mean something or make it or make it matter in the long run. Um that 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 what his father died for it's preserving the thing that his father died for for as long as he possibly can. And maybe now he's saying, well, and
1: it doesn't die on his watch kind of Yeah,
0: thing. right, yeah. Um I you know, the, there's a lot of interesting literature that came out of the the northeast in uh, following the Civil War. Um mm-hmm and uh or or during that era um and and i think a lot of it is about you know what we just went through this we just went through this 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 chaos right the civil war and what but what does it mean like what what are we passing on now that we've won you know we we fought to preserve something or to end something in the case of slavery, um, to preserve uh, to preserve and then create a new w- a new way of life, um, but but what does that actually look like? We've 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 won the war, but now comes an, another way of work. Right? It's it, reconstruction happened in the south, but mm. it was also happening in the north. It was just called something different, and it was about it was like a definition of terms. And there was a lot of writing, a lot of literature um, that was trying to figure out what that meant. Um, and and I think that in a lot of ways his creation of this school, um, like what was going on with you know these big titans of industry like Ford and Rockefeller and these Vanderbilt and these guys, they're doing something very similar. They're responding to that same question, but in a different way than what Prescott is doing by creating a school. Um, and and it feels like maybe at the end of his life here, all these the effects of all these things are coming. In touch with one another at the same time that Europe is being thrown into another bit of chaos, as as the Germans are taking Belgium or Brussels.
2: Yeah, can you tell me something as well about the reference to FDR and the New Deal? Is there a kind of economic reconstruction going on as well mm-hmm. in America?
0: Yeah, uh, well, Matt, at the do you same wanna... time, I, I mean, the, the New Deal would have been what year was the New? Did the, did FDR implement? implement that matt do you know do you know off the top of your head it was in the 30s yeah. in the 30s it was following
1: the great depression so it was an attempt to lift america out of out of the depression by sparking the economy by increasing government spending and public works mm. to try to give people jobs give people paychecks give people opportunities to you know, survive and and to do so in a way that improved the the country. So the government, so the country, goes into debt that way rather, or not rather than, but along also and also through by by greater provisions of welfare than made that mm. than had previously been available. So
0: yeah, nineteen thirty between thirty three and thirty six.
2: So there's something going on, I think, between. Art, the art of decadence uh, and the literature of decadence. And then this, as you've said, this kind of reconstruction of society. And there's a kind of tension here. So page 13, Mrs. Prescott really dismisses the history teacher Ruggles because he, Ruggles, sorry, because he likes labour novels. And he says there's a great deal of solid fiction being written today by men who understand that the fundamental structure of our society changed with the New Deal. And she really dismisses him and his taste in writing. But then we find later that Prescott, in a way, is kind of on a similar side and says, you know, this, um, this Paris that you love, that, that Henry James has constructed, it's not the Paris that we see in Zola's novels, where, you know, they're set in the kind of working-class... Mm. Um, Bonlieu, the um, the suburbs where everybody's poor. So he's he's kind of, there's a sense that there's a tension between the real struggle and the ugliness of struggle and then the idealized beauty. I mm. um, wonder yeah. if that's something that's happening in the novel.
0: Slightly a side note, but related. I was reading something about um, the poet, the English poet John, is it John Clare, C-L-A-R-E? Oh, and, yeah. And comparing him. Uh, I think Bloom, Harold Bloom was writing about how um, he deserves to be much more known, but he kind of gets buried by uh, Tennyson and uh, and Wordsworth and Coleridge and Keats and Shelley and, you know, the other romantics who are quite popular, but that Claire yeah. was sort of the working class poet.
2: And That's it, right. He was dismissed because he was considered the kind of lad from Northamptonshire. Yeah.
0: he's the son of He was the son of farmers and a big, one of his big concerns was the, the dissolution of that way of life in the industrial revolution and so forth and how there's this tension between him um and and people like wordsworth or Shelley who are kind of in the lake lake district and (laughs) maybe not i don't know if Shelley was in the lake district but he's writing about how um that sort of tension comes up and they kind of represent two different poles and one of them becomes like the you know sort of quintessential poet english poet of the era and the other one kind of gets forgotten by all but a few people although perhaps he's being remembered more now but then wordsworth but then claire ends up dying in an an asylum and he's talking about how Mm -hmm. there's a sort of um uh, terrible poetry in that in in what happens to them in their lives you know the one gets forgotten and locked away and one becomes the sort of quintessential poet of the era, as I said. But the one who gets locked away is the one who's fighting for the common, you know, writing for the common person. You know, he's sort of, you know, I'm not going to say that he's political in his writing, but he's certainly, there's that element of to it. And he's trying to preserve a way of life in the face of the oncoming or the onslaught of industry.
2: Yeah. I think he was also trying to strip away a lot of the conventions of the pastoral and try to say, look, mm-hmm. poetry doesn't have to you don't have to know virgil to be able to write poetry about the countryside i can i can write it in a kind of new and raw way in the language mm. of common men as as the romantics were
0: so you're trying to give voice to people who were not rich enough to get the education that you'd need to understand coleridge
2: yes i'm trying to give a voice to the countryside that was um i suppose authentically english or as, as a working class man might see it
3: mm.
1: Well, that's ironic then for I mean that's interesting because that's the opposite of a falcon class, right mm. like you have to be pretty educated to understand all of the jokes in the or all of the references right
2: yeah, like when she um when Harriet jokes with Brian that she thinks the egoist is a good novel, and it's a way of mocking Ruggles um self-importance,
0: okay, so i want to uh, well, let's Let's talk about this briefly before we go, because I, I've been thinking a lot about whether or not maybe Auchincloss is winking when he does this. Like d- maybe in the end, it doesn't matter if you know who these characters, like who the details of the egoist or Henry James or H.H. H. Richardson or whoever. Like maybe it, maybe he puts that in there in a sort of ironic sense and like the, the novel is, you know, maybe it makes it more fun for, you know, people like us to, <laughs> to, uh, to argue about it, but do you, can, can you not, can you understand, I mean, can you get the sort of heart of the novel even without those things? And maybe that's, those things are sort of fundamentally distracting in the way that they were for Harriet.
2: Yeah. Doesn't it also show something about the, there's a, a little bit of a persnickety geekiness to Brian as well, that he, mm. as an English, is he an English graduate? I can't remember. Is, is it's his part of the narrative is much more laced through with references to Boudin and Emerson and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps that's not how the rest of the novel will be.
0: Well, and yeah, I mean, Havistock has his own way of interpreting things as well, his own lens through which he sees the world. Yeah.
1: What if it's, what if it's, uh, this is an interesting question because. It could be. It could be just that we're seeing it this way because we're seeing Brian's yeah. take on it, and so Brian is trying to. I mean, Brian isn't. Uh, it, I think you're right. I think Brian isn't. You know, a, a student of English, He's the professor of English, or teaching. He teaches English at the school anyway. Mm. Um, and so there's a sense in which these are all things that he likes and he loves. So of the course they come out in his journal. Mm-hmm. But also, it may be his way of saying, "Look at me. I fit in with." Justin Martyr, right? like i'm I know the kinds of things that students from Justin Martyr would know, um, and so there's this kind of yeah at least intellectually, I can be the type of person that knows the sorts of things that mm. Frank Prescott would teach his students to learn um, but then it is but then from at the authorial level, is there this thing where Alkan is trying to show us what like like that like you need to be like the kind of education that Justin Martyr would demand of you. I'm going to demand of you as you're reading this book. Um, but then at the same time, perhaps as you're saying, David, maybe that maybe there's this subtle undermining of that message by saying, and yet actually you don't need to know these things in order to read and enjoy this book or to get the, to get the point, you know? So there's like, you feel like you're, you're less than, justin martyr ish yeah but then you
0: don't you don't, the end, s- you don't feel you don't feel like you're smart enough to get it right but maybe that, that that's a distraction right.
2: the interesting thing is that um frank is always being called a philistine <laughs> so he cuts against it
0: <laughs>
3: because he just wants <laughs> to mm-hmm. be
2: out on the football field sort of cheering for the guy who can throw like a saint or whatever <laughs> he said um <laughs> It's interesting, I don't know, because if this is a uh, deliberate intention of Auchincloss to sort of try and say, look how erudite I am and I want my novel to be connected with all these great works of art, then it does seem a little desperate and overdone. Mm. So maybe it's it's more, as you say, about Brian trying to fit in, in into what he thinks is a very academic...
0: Maybe, so maybe it is desperate and overdone.
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe Brian, that's Brian why it
0: is desperate, yeah. By Brian,
2: yeah. Yeah, poor Brian with his heart murmur.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, we should wrap this up. So, uh, Sarah-Jane, what what is a question that you might have that you are looking forward to as we read chapters 6 through 9 for the next episode?
2: I'd like to figure out more um, about Prescott's relationship to beauty and art. He says, I'm a great believer in safety valves, particularly where art is concerned. And I'm never sure when Prescott's being serious or when he's just sort of being iconoclastic for the sake of, <laughs> of, of sort of being truculent. Um, yeah. So, the sake yeah, of
0: mystery. Yeah.
2: Yeah. He's that's one thing that's interesting to me. Mm. And I don't know. I had a sense that maybe Brian was going to get with one of Prescott's daughters. But actually, that's probably not going to happen, is it?
0: Well, who knows? We'll have to we'll have to find out. I mean, that would be uh, that sounds like it would be in a Henry James.
2: We can pray. It's too much plot. I don't think this is going to be a novel about plot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Matt, you've read it before, but what is something that you are looking forward to and um, you know looking into these next three, well, four chapters, I guess.
3: Um,
1: I, I'm I'm interested in this idea of whether Prescott is. If, if Prescott really is somebody who believed that you had to be a military leader to be a man, mm. I mean, you know, that kind of reputation and, and Brian doesn't fit that, but he's going to fix it. But then is he starting to change his view after, you know, seeing, seeing what Brian did with Harriet and is Prescott seeing that there's a way to be a man that's different than the way he's a man and then, and then can help is, and then intends to help Brian with that. Or is it still is it still about no? This is what a man is, and that's what, what I'm going to help you to do. Even even as he leaves the school, and, and I don't know, like how are we going to see that? Can, can my question even be answered if we're now, if now everything we're learning about Prescott is from the past, right? Like we've heard, we've read the present with Brian, but now with Horace, we're all getting all the past, right? So can, what? What is? I don't know. That would be interesting. Mm. Hmm. That's just what I'm wondering about it.
0: Hmm. Well, thanks to you both for taking the time. We had a nice long conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Next week, we will uh, discuss chapters six through nine. So, you know, everybody make sure you uh, read that. If you want to see the schedule, um, the full schedule, you can go to the uh, Close Reads Instagram page. That's at Close Reads, pause on Instagram, or you can sign up for the newsletter. That's at closereads.substack.com. And when you go there, you'll be able to see all the archives like where we posted the um the schedule of course it's also at facebook so if you are on facebook and you want to join the conversation you can go to the close reads podcast discussion group just search that in the in the uh, search bar on facebook and you can join there if you want to follow us on twitter you can do that as well at close reads pods uh, i think that about covers all the different ways you can get in touch with us although you can also email at close at gmail.com if you want to send a question and of course we will do our final episode on the rector of justice and we will answer listener questions don't forget also about the other podcast on the network we have the place the thing right now Heidi and Tim are discussing the tempest the episode for Act one is up and then Act two will go up very very soon and then we also of course have the daily poem um, I did share a John Claire uh, poem there on that later this week so if you're uh, if you're interested in hearing a John Claire poem which we just dis- we just discussed him then you can make sure you subscribe for that I guess that covers it though so Sarah J. also I heard
1: that I heard that Sarah Jane was incredible on the play. Of the thing, from the two places. Yeah, there
2: were some good reviews. So well done, Sarah Jane. And oh, thanks, Matt. Yeah, if you guys have, if those of you who didn't have a listen to it, then, then get over there. I, I've been wracked with guilt about one thing I said, which was I went off on this big tirade about a particular fortress in Venice, and had and this idea that Othello had been to look at a statue of Bologna, and then teaching the play to the boys in in school. Subsequently, I realized at that point in the play, he's actually in Cyprus. <laughs> it's complete nonsense. So sorry.
0: Oh well, I mean, if someone has <laughs> nonsense in at least one episode, then you know what are we really doing here?
2: Apologies for that. Um, that was way to get out of the way early, though. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to Boston then, David? Did you say next? Yeah,
0: that's the plan.
2: Okay, so one thing we didn't mention that you you must do when you're there. Okay. Is go to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which is mentioned on page twenty nine of the novel. And I think that Isabella Stewart Gardner was maybe a friend of Harriet Prescott. Ah. And there's a painting there, Titian's Europa. And there's an amazing painting by um, John Singer Sargent of the. uh, the, It's it's like a painting of Duende. It's this white dancer with a black background. It's an amazing painting. But the whole the whole museum is incredible. It's built like a kind of Venetian palazzo, and it was built out in the swamps in Boston mm-hmm. under cover of darkness in secret. And it's full of all kinds of works of art from Giotto through to, um, oh, wow, through to Singer Sergeant. So if you have time, I recommend it. Oh, I think I'll have to make time.
0: We're actually going to do, um, Graham and I are going in that. If you want to come, you're welcome to. We're going to be doing a, um, literary tour, like we're doing a feature for our magazine on kind of the literary tour of boston so we're gonna do like oh, a, pho- wow. a photo essay of all the different spots with co- with some brief commentary about you know our sort of excursion doing that so we're going to go to the library the, you know boston public library and we're going to go to the different literary houses and go to as many spots as we can over the course of a couple of days so we'll have to um go there and then get some footage of this garden for us whatever they'll let us do i guess for uh for the close reads listeners
2: Wow, that will be incredible. It's, there's so much in Boston in New England.
0: Yeah, we're going to get going to do as much as we can.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, well thanks to you both for for joining me. This was a lot of fun and I look forward to next week's conversation. Thanks for working with me on the time the time uh, the different time zones to both of you. Oh, pleasure. <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll talk to you soon.